Well, special greetings to the Advent Hope group on campus. We've been talking about doing this for quite a while, and uh, the time has finally arrived. So the weekend is here, and we're looking forward to a nice weekend together with you. And thank you for the kind words, Norman. Uh, Loma Linda isn't exactly new to us. Uh, my son was born right here, and I was ordained to the ministry in the uh, university church uh, just a block or so away. So we have spent a fair amount of time down in this area in our, in our past uh, experience. We're going to get right into the uh, meeting for tonight. I'm going to ask that uh, we have some help maybe in passing out the outlines uh, that we want to place in your hands. These tonight will just be very brief summary outlines. Tomorrow we'll have more in-depth, de uh, more in -depth, detailed outlines for you to study and take home uh, to continue your own study in this area. Tonight, I want to ask two questions. First, how can we have a reasonable hope that we will be alive to see Jesus come? And the word is reasonable. Because you see, my parents had that hope. And my grandparents had that hope. And my great-grandfather was a delegate to the 1888 conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I have a long history of hope in the second coming of Jesus Christ within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But every one of them has been laid to rest. Every one of them sang the same songs that we're singing right now, Lift Up the Trumpet and all of the others. And here we are, still singing, still praying, still believing that Jesus is coming soon. And, of course, that has caused a good number to lose that faith in the urgency and the nearness of Jesus' coming. We have been saying it for 150 years now, and we're still here, going on about our business, carrying out our careers, getting ready for whatever God leads us into, and then going to our graves. Will my son have to say the same thing about me that I am saying about my parents? They had a hope that Jesus was coming soon. I have a hope that he's coming soon, and you do too. How can that be turned into a reasonable hope? Something that we can really kind of count on, not just a wish, not just a desire, but something that really becomes very, very concrete in our lives. You know, there's one thing that has to happen, you all know it, before Jesus comes, the gospel to all the world. And you think about that for a minute, and that is about the most daunting thing you can imagine. There are 24,000 people groups in our world, each with their own culture and their own language and their own background. 8,000 of them have never heard about Jesus Christ ever. A third of the world, and, all, and with all the satellite and, and, and technology we've got, the shortwave programming and all the rest, a third of the world has never heard about Jesus Christ. Here is what they broke it down just for one country, India. 600,000 villages in India. For every thousand villages you would visit, 950 would have no Christian church or pastor from any denomination. They said if you had 1,000 evangelistic teams and each team visited a new village each week, never visiting the same village twice, it would take 10 years to get the gospel to the villages of India. One country. Do you see the problem that we're facing? The gospel to all the world in one generation, in any generation, how can that possibly be with the population explosion of our world today? 
How can we have a reasonable hope that Jesus is coming in our lifetime? All right, hold that thought. I'm not going to say any more about that. We'll come back to it later. The second question. What is special about Adventism? What makes Adventism worth being a part of? What makes Adventism worth having evangelistic meetings and Bible studies and doing all the things that we, evangel- that we Adventists do? What is special? Well, you say the Sabbath. If you were to travel within 50 miles radius of this area, I wonder how many Sabbath-keeping churches we could find. More than one, for sure. Quite a few, I'll bet. Sabbath-keeping churches. You would not have to be a Seventh-day Adventist at all, and you could keep the Sabbath for every day in your life. The Sabbath is not unique to Seventh-day Adventists. And you go down the list of our other doctrines, and they are shared. We didn't come up with new doctrines, by and large. We borrowed baptism from the Baptists and other doctrines from other groups. We just put them together. So what is unique and what is special about Adventism? And here comes the most strange thing, if you've never heard me say this before. I believe it's the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how can that possibly be true when if you want to turn on the radio or the television on any given Sunday morning, what are you going to hear the preacher talking about? Salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. Everyone talks about that. That is the common denominator of Christianity. That is the one thing we share in common with all other Christian denominations. Or is it? That's going to be our study tonight. We're going to look at gospel tonight. Two Gospels, the two that are right in front of you. Two trees, two Gospel trees, producing fruit as the result of that. And we're just going to go through these two trees tonight. I'm not going to try to prove anything tonight. We'll open the Bible tomorrow and look at the Bible evidence tomorrow. Tonight I just want to share some concepts with you. We're going to look at these Gospels. We're going to examine what each one is all about and how it all works out and what the issues really are. What is unique about Seventh-day Adventism? I'm going to put the same thing up here on the easel. Uh, You've got it right in front of you, but this way you'll be able to follow along exactly where we are at each point. We will start with the one that looks like this on the left-hand side of your page. Sin. The gospel saves us from sin. So what is sin? Why are we condemned? Why are we guilty? Why are we going to hell? What is the the sin that the gospel is supposed to save us from? All right. This gospel says, The sin for which we are condemned is not primarily what we say or what we do or even what we think. The gospel for which we are lost, the gospel for which we are condemned, is the sin... Did I say gospel? The sin for which we are condemned is the sin of being born into the human race. You say, why is that sin? Well, guess who our father is? Good old Adam. And Adam made a decision. And because of Adam's decision, the race was kind of turned over to another master. He had legal rights now that he didn't have before. And because of Adam's sin, our world is not so good anymore. And our natures are even worse. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that your nature is not your friend? You make good decisions. You say, I'm going to have a good day. I'm going to do the right thing today. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to smile at people. Things are going to go well today. And what happens about an hour into that day? Somebody really gets to you. Somebody gets on your case. And all your good intentions go right down the drain. 
Why? Because your nature took over. Your nature pulling you the wrong way. Your nature is not your friend. And this gospel says your nature is so bad, that's why you're a lost, condemned sinner. You're under condemnation because you've inherited horrible equipment. You are sinners because of being born into a fallen world with a fallen nature. Now tonight, I'm going to be reading just a whole bunch of little one-sentence things. Every one of the statements I'm going to be reading is from a Seventh-day Adventist. So I want you to understand that all of the statements on both both trees are going to be written by Seventh-day Adventists. Here's the first one. A father writing about his newborn child. This perfect child, who has done no wrong act in his life, is already sinful. You cannot rid yourself of sin by not sinning. It is in you before your first breath. So there we have that baby, a sinner, as soon as it is born. Another one. A baby is born a sinner before it has ever committed one sinful act. Born sinners. You've heard that phrase. That's a very, very common phrase. You're born a sinner. We're born under condemnation. You're born condemned and lost. So that's the first point. That obviously leads to the second point. If Christ is going to be our Savior, guess what he can't be? He can't be a sinner. Well, if sin is my nature, and I'm condemned because of my nature, and I need forgiveness for my nature, then what if Christ would have inherited my nature? He would have been a sinner too. And how could he save anybody then? So this gospel says emphatically that Christ could not inherit normal heredity. He had to have a special exemption. He had to have the nature like Adam had when Adam was created by God. Now, these two points are so important to the rest of the tree that I want to make sure we understand exactly what they say. Sin as nature. Here I am. I'm a baby. I'm born. I'm condemned because of the nature that is within me. When I'm baptized, I don't get rid of that nature. It doesn't go away. I've still got that nature in me. So I'm just as condemned by nature after the new birth as I was before the new birth. And it needs forgiveness just as much now as it did when I first had it. Well, you continue right on. When do we get rid of that nature that is condemning us, the nature for which we are lost? When when does it go away? It doesn't go away, as some Adventists used to think about 100 years ago at the close of probation when we received the seal of God. That was a problem in some circles 100 years ago. It doesn't go away then. That's called holy flesh, and that's not right. It doesn't go away until Jesus recreates us body and nature at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So watch carefully. I'm condemned at birth by nature. I'm condemned after I'm born again by the same nature. I'm condemned after the close of probation by the same nature, which needs as much forgiveness then as it does today or before I was born again, because it's just as bad then as it is today. My nature, not talking about my character, not talking about the way I live. I'm talking about the nature that is within me. It is just as bad after the close of probation as it is today. And that means I need forgiveness right up until the day Jesus comes, right up until he transforms me completely, body and nature. So forgiveness is a constant, just as sin is a constant in this gospel. Sin is as constant as breathing. Therefore, forgiveness needs to be an umbrella that we hold over us at all times, in all situations, in all circumstances, to cover our constant sinning. Constant sin needs constant forgiveness. That's the first point. 
Now the second point. It really isn't about Christ's nature, even though that's the title of it. It's about how Christ was tempted. How were Adam and Eve tempted in the Garden of Eden? Could Satan run after them in the garden and harass them here and there as they were working on the garden? Those weren't the rules, were they? One tree. Now think about that for just a minute. One tree in the whole world, not just the garden. One tree in the whole world where they could be tempted. I don't know about you, I'd like those rules today. Wouldn't that be neat? I think of the redwoods we have up in our part of Northern California. They think they found the tallest one. What if that were the tempting tree? Just one redwood tree in all the world. Just stay right down here, folks. You'd have no problem at all. Don't buy any airline tickets up to Northern California. Those were the rules. You know how simple it would have been for Adam and Eve not to be tempted and not to sin? Build a wall around that tree. Build it high. Build it so they couldn't even see the tree. Never even think about it. And just walk past it on their way to happiness and joy for the rest of eternity. That's how easy it would have been. Because nothing within them wanted to sin. They had to be pulled from something outside that was not natural to them. That's how Adam was tempted. After Adam sinned, did it stay the same? Where did the tempting tree go? Ah, right in here. Right inside. In our natures. I used to tell my students, I don't need the devil to tempt me. I do a great job all by myself. I've got a tempting tree right within. And how often can Satan get at me within this tempting tree? Anytime he wants to. Middle of the night, right? You found that to be true? Middle of the day, morning, evening, anytime you're at your lowest, something is stressing you out. Guess what's coming at you? From within. Satan has free reign, by legal right, to tempt us at any time he wants, whenever he feels like it. So now the question is, which way was Christ tempted? See, that's the issue. Was he tempted like Adam? Or was he tempted like you and me? This gospel says, like Adam, not like you and me. He was not tempted from within. He never was tempted to lose his temper. He was never tempted to be jealous, to be proud, to be selfish, to overeat. He was never tempted on the host of things that we're tempted on from within our natures because his nature wasn't that way. His nature was a perfect nature, like Adam's. And the only way he could be tempted is from outside, like Adam was tempted. When Satan came to him and said, look, bow down before me and you'll escape the cross. That's the way Christ was tempted, to forego his mission, to do, do not follow his father's plan. And he had to go out there to find temptation. One of the advocates of this gospel says Christ was tempted three times in his life. He was tempted in the wilderness, he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, and was tempted on the cross. You see, in each case he went out there, and Satan was waiting for him out there, just like Adam and Satan at the tree. See? So this gospel says Christ was tempted like Adam was tempted. Adam failed, Christ succeeded. He was the second Adam. He was tempted in the ways that Adam fell. He succeeded where Adam fell, and therefore he is our Savior. All right? So both those points are very important to understand. Sin is as constant as breathing. Christ did not sin because he was not tempted from within his nature. Now to the third point. Justification is just a big word for forgiveness. 
So what is justification and why is it alone on this chart? Imputed only, credited to our account only. Why does it stand alone? Well, here's what someone wrote. Justification is 100% God's work. Sanctification is a work done by us, aided by the indwelling Christ. Catch that? Justification is all God's work. Forgiveness. But sanctification is our work with some help from God. So it becomes apparent why sanctification doesn't get included in this gospel, because that would put human works into the equation, something I do, contributing to my salvation. And salvation is a gift of God. So sanctification can have no part in this gospel because it's really half my work and it's a little bit of help from God. So that's why it's eliminated from this gospel. Someone wrote in, the fact is that my contribution is rather meaningless in the cosmic struggle and worthless when it comes to my salvation. So whatever I can contribute has no value in salvation. It may be a result of salvation, but it is not a cause of salvation. Now, what are the practical implications of that? Well, here they are. Let's say you accepted Jesus. Let's say you were born again. You had a great walk with the Lord. And then you decided that uh, you weren't doing very well with this Sabbath business. Uh, you weren't making any money. Uh, you weren't financing your education. You weren't able to survive. So you had to do your business on Sabbath. That's the only day you had to keep yourself, uh, keep paying the bills. And so you go, open, open your business or do your work on the Sabbath as a continuing thing. Does that cause you to lose your salvation? This gospel says, were you saved by Sabbath keeping? No, you were saved by believing in Jesus. Well, then you can't be lost by not keeping the Sabbath. All right. How many things could that apply to then? Tithe paying, what we eat, what we drink, and a whole host of other things. If we're not saved by them, we can't be lost by them. Someone wrote this. Doing wrong, or even believing wrong, does not necessarily imply a rejection of Jesus. So you're doing what you know to be wrong. You know it. It isn't a question at all. But that doesn't, mean you, that doesn't mean you reject Jesus. You see, this gospel is a very simple gospel. There's one way into Christ, and there's only one way out. The way in is to believe in Jesus as your Savior, accept his life in place of yours. The only way you can walk out of that salvation is the same way you came in, by then turning your back on Jesus and saying, I don't want you in my life anymore. That's the only way out. Anything else, and you're still in salvation because you accepted Jesus as your Savior and you can't lose that until you reject Jesus as your Savior. Sabbath-keeping and the other things don't really cause that at all. Here's the way someone else wrote it. Only when we personally, consciously, deliberately, persistently, and ultimately reject the gift of eternal life in Christ does the guilt and responsibility of sin and the second death become ours persistently and ultimately. That's the only way you can lose your salvation. Another one said, if you have accepted him, then you won't be lost. Even if you forget to confess a particular sin, you can be lost only if you continually and finally turn your back on God. Someone else said it this way. 
Salvation is easy. Christian living is the struggle. We should not confuse Christian living with salvation. Catch that? Saving, being saved is accepting Jesus. Then Christian living, Sabbath keeping, tithe paying, health reform, all the other things, that's the result of being saved. Don't confuse Christian living with salvation. He said, so you in Christ are a finished work. That's done. You're saved. But Christ in you, the ongoing work, the sanctifying work, is not a finished work. It began when you were converted. You haven't come to a full stop. You won't until the second coming of Christ. So making a distinction between accepting Christ and Christ living in us, which is half our work and half God's work. That is the ultimate implication of justification as the only cause of salvation, excluding sanctification from a cause. And of course, if that is true, how can you talk about perfection? It's not possible, because that won't happen until the second coming of Christ. You'll be sinning right up until the second coming by nature. And so uh, perfection is something that should not be emphasized, and it leads to fanaticism according to this gospel, and it is not a part of the gospel at all, and we should not be emphasizing it. All right, what is this gospel that I have been describing to you in the last 15 minutes? This is Orthodox Christianity. This is what the preachers on Sunday morning are preaching. This is what Billy Graham preaches. This is the mainstream Orthodox Christian gospel that is heard throughout the world and has been for centuries. This is nothing new. The Reformers and all of the others that have come along since have been preaching one form or another of this gospel. So it is the mainstream Orthodox Christian gospel. Well, what has happened when this gospel has been knocking on the doors of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? This is where it gets very interesting. It has been knocking on our doors for approximately 40 years with some degree of, um, of uh, seriousness especially within the last 20 years has this gospel been demanding our attention. Remember, all of the statements I read were from Seventh-day Adventist authors. So this gospel has been knocking on our doors very hard within the last few years. So what has been happening? First of all, the judgment. Uh, some of you uh, may remember that my colleague Desmond Ford at Pacific Union College, our offices were right next to each other, my colleague said, what is this judgment thing? We really didn't do anything different in 1844 than Christ has always been doing in the heavenly sanctuary. We came up with a judgment to save face because of the Millerite disappointment. Well, he was pretty strong about that. Why do we need a judgment? This gospel doesn't need a judgment. What are you going to judge? It wasn't that Desmond Ford had a hard time figuring out 2,300 days. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that this gospel doesn't need a judgment. All it needs is a good recording angel secretary. Writes in the record books of heaven, saved January 21, 1992. Check down the list. Never rejected Christ? Never rejected Christ? Well, he's still saved. What are you going to judge? Sabbath keeping? Tithe paying? No, you don't judge those things because you're not saved by them or lost by them. So salvation is a matter of believing and accepting Jesus and being forgiven of your sins. And that doesn't require a judgment at all. So this becomes very peripheral to that. Now you think that uh, Desmond Ford is way off the scene because, of course, he's retired and gone back to Australia now. 
new book, well, at least a few years old. Does the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine of the cleansing of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment distort, undermine, or contradict the one and only new covenant gospel of grace? The answer is yes, it does. You can't have both. One contradicts the other. The judgment contradicts the gospel. Another one writing into one of our magazines. The, the investigative judgment and the two-phase atonement are an offense to the gospel, a serious deviation that undermines the fullness of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why there are questions on the judgment, because this gospel says it's not relevant and it is peripheral and we should not be emphasizing it. came across a couple of letters by uh, pastors in the South Pacific Division about a Two years ago, there was a major push when Desmond Ford went back to retire in Australia. There was a major push on the part of some congregations to have Desmond Ford approved once again within the South Pacific Division so he could go around to churches and hold meetings like he used to. Well, the administration did not allow that of the South Pacific Division. And here is what a couple of pastors wrote to the division. I think a major problem in this country is that many of our administrators do not know that the church today believes essentially the same as Des on those very contentious issues for which he was dismissed. And then another one wrote in, Subsequent Adventist thinking in North America seems to have moved closer to his position and further away from that of those who dismissed him. No, they're not just uh, off-the-wall pastors. I'm afraid they are more accurate than we would like to believe that his positions of 25 years ago are much more accepted today within very high levels of the Seventh-day Adventist Church than they were during those years. You will read and hear some of his very same issues. This gospel is the gospel he portrayed most clearly. Uh, it is the one he challenged my thinking on when I was a, a teacher at Pacific Union College. I thought I knew the gospel. Des came along and challenged us all. And I had to restudy the whole thing and try to figure it out for myself, starting from scratch. Well, today we're hearing some of these very things from some of our most trusted leaders in our beloved church. So I think that these pastors are not that far off the mark when they say that the pendulum has swung to his side, even though he's no longer a player in the scene of Adventism anymore. Well, what about Ellen G. White? Trouble is, at least in my opinion, we'll look at that tomorrow, Ellen White doesn't agree with this gospel. She doesn't share the ideas of this gospel. So what are you going to do with a prophet who simply doesn't understand the basic issues of the gospel? Well, here's what one letter writer writing to Andrews University said. How do we keep our teenagers in touch with Christ? For starters, Deep Six messages to young people and all other compilations, there is not a shred of gospel in the lot. Well, we've heard that before, but now listen to number two. Stop publishing Steps to Christ, which is simply another works approach to salvation. You say, how can that be? How can he say such a thing? Back in the 1950s, when Seventh-day Adventists first had contact with evangelical leaders in the Christian world, Barnhouse and Martin came to the Seventh-day Adventist church and said, we kind of like you Adventists, but you've got some strange doctrines. Uh, can't we sit down and talk about them a little bit and see if we can come to, some, uh, come to some kind of agreement as to what we believe? We don't want to write you up in our cult book. That's what Walter Martin did. He wrote The Kingdom of the Cults. 
We don't want to put you in the cults along with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. We want you to be a respectable mainstream organization. Let's talk about it. Well, you know, the man that was behind all of this, Barnhouse, in 1950, a couple of years before they came to us, he published a review of Steps to Christ in his magazine, Eternity Magazine. He denounced the book, Steps to Christ, as being false in all its parts. False in all its parts. That is a very knowledgeable evangelical writing about the book, Steps to Christ. Because this is the evangelical gospel. And he understands completely and fully that Steps to Christ is 100% different than the mainstream Christian gospel. So he can either choose the gospel of the Christian church or he can choose Steps to Christ and he will have none of Steps to Christ. And so the run who wrote into Andrews University may not be so far off after all. If you're going to believe this gospel, maybe you'd better stop publishing Steps to Christ. This was in Spectrum a while back in an article entitled, Where Are Historians Taking the Church? Her writings can still be of great devotional benefit today, but they offer the modern reader no inspired revelation concerning history or health or any topic about which we can know more than she. They offer us no information about these subjects in which we can know more than she. This reformulation of the meaning of Mrs. White's inspiration has the attraction of retaining her status as a prophet of the church, albeit one reduced in authority, while removing the ground for conflict with the historical critical method. So we can still call her a prophet. We can still believe in her somewhat. And uh, then we don't have any problem when she is just wrong on some things because she was in a growing process anyway, and all prophets made mistakes when they were younger, and, you know, you just kind of accept that and don't get too uptight about it. Another writer, Perhaps it is impossible to have a culturally relevant church and maintain a literal view of Ellen White's inspiration. I wonder. A culturally relevant church and a literal view of what Ellen White says questions raised about Ellen White, not just outside the church, but within the Seventh-day Adventist church, not about her being a prophet, but about her credibility and authority in her statements and her books. There is a discrepancy that we're beginning, that we have uh, put it between her status as a prophet and her authority. What about the law? Doesn't the Bible say that sin is the transgression of the law? Well, how often are we sinning? As often as we breathe, constantly, because we have a nature within us all the time, so that means we're transgressing the law constantly. How can we talk about the law being kept by people with fallen natures if every one of us is breaking the law constantly because of our fallen natures? And of course, the Sabbath is right in the heart of the law. How can you keep the Sabbath right now? Just take this right now. We're in the middle of the Sabbath. Did you leave your fallen natures in your dorm rooms or in your cars tonight? Did you bring them in with you? Then you're breaking the Sabbath right now by nature. How can we talk about the Sabbath as being important? And so someone wrote in, Far too long we were taught that in order to be saved, we must keep the Sabbath and all of the other things associated with legalism. Interesting choice of words, isn't it? All of the other things associated with legalism questions relating to the Sabbath and the law. And of course we get to the top of the tree and I don't have to tell you about the discussions we have on those issues. 
I mean, they go on endlessly. Health reform. My goodness, that's got to be one of the peripheral sanctification issues. Has nothing to do with justification. Has nothing to do with salvation. It is one of the things that you do because you want to live longer and avoid a heart attack, and so you do some things, but it is not related to salvation. As someone wrote, God's salvation is so extravagant, so comprehensive, that it can't be increased or diminished by what we eat, drink, or wear. The key word there is diminished. It cannot be increased or diminished. Exercise and a good diet contribute to a long and useful life, but they don't add to our salvation. Not a salvation issue. Have you heard that? Not a salvation issue. Let's concentrate on the salvation issues. Justification, believing in Jesus, forgiveness, salvation issues, health reform, peripheral. Take it or leave it. Up to you. We'll all go to heaven together. And, of course, standards. My goodness, standards change all over the place, generation to generation, country to country. And how can you have any kind of confidence that that's a salvation issue? Members give assent to various standards and rules as a condition of membership in the organization. We need to keep in mind that this assent is not related to their salvation, only to being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now catch that. If you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, you agree to certain standards. But remember, it doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. It's just because you want to join the club known as Seventh-day Adventists. Like any club has, a, has some rules that you go by. So these are conditions of membership in the organization. Though I believe something to be correct from a religious perspective, it is not a matter of salvation. Maybe correct, maybe a good thing to do, but it's not a salvation issue. It doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. Can you begin to see that this gospel has had a real impact on our, a few of our doctrines and our lifestyle issues? See, these things, these questions, are not just because there are liberal tendencies among us, worldly tendencies. No, these are because there is a very, this is a conservative gospel. Have you noticed that uh, there are people like, um, well, let's see, Pat Robertson and uh, Jerry Falwell and people like that who are not known as liberals at all? They are quite the opposite. Well, this is their gospel. This is not a liberal gospel. This is a conservative gospel. This is evangelical. This is the Christian right gospel. This is the gospel that they are wanting us to believe and share. This is where they, the, 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 the ones that came to our church 50 years ago, want, this is where they were coming from. This is a conservative gospel. So remember that this gospel, this traditional mainstream gospel has had major impact on many of our doctrines and lifestyle issues to the point where we have more questions than we have answers these days about these various things. Now just one little postscript. Underneath your chart you see something else written. It's called predestination. The reason it's under the tree and not in the tree is because this gospel was developed third and fourth century when everyone believed in predestination. I mean, there was no question about it. You didn't discuss it. It was just done. It's a foregone conclusion. God decides who's saved and lost. You don't have a voice in the matter. You can't make a choice for yourself because, you, because God is the one who decides all things. Otherwise, if it isn't that way, then God is subject to your choices. And that can't be because God must be sovereign. So everyone believed in predestination. Funny thing. 
Although hardly any Christians believe in predestination anymore. You find a few, but they're in the minority. The gospel that was built on predestination is still the mainstream gospel. That's an odd little thing of history. You see, it fits. We're automatically sinners. Christ was automatically righteous. We're automatically forgiven as long as we believe in Jesus, and we're automatically made perfect at the second coming of Christ. Nature is the problem. Not what I do or say or think. It's the equipment. Bad equipment, sin. Good equipment, no sin. It's all about equipment. And so this gospel fits beautifully with predestination. But I wonder if it fits with what the Bible really teaches, which is free choice. Free choice. That's the heart and soul of not just Adventism, but all of God's dealings with a, a, a sinful world for 6,000 years. Jesus died to make it possible for Hitler to reject him if he wanted to. He preserved Hitler's free choice, just like he preserves your free choice. If it were not for Jesus' death, Hitler would have had no choice, and you would have had no choice. God protects free choice at all costs. An incredible amount of suffering has gone on in this world because God protected the free choice of angels, Adam and Eve, and every one of us. That's how important free choice is in this universe. It is the most important issue in the government of God. Free choice. Based on free choice, a completely different gospel develops. Sin. What is sin? In this gospel, sin is not an accident of birth. Sin is not bad equipment. Sin is not something that you happen to be born into because Adam made a horrible decision 6,000 years ago. In this gospel, sin is a decision we make, a choice of the mind, a decision that we make that I don't like your way, God. I'd rather do it my way. That's what sin is in this gospel. Sin is a choice of the mind. came across this letter. For several months, I've been puzzling over the question, what did I accept as truth that brought me to a sleepy attitude towards victory in my life? What did I accept that made me sleepy about victory? Now it is clear that I had a misunderstanding as to the nature of sin. I have always accepted the fact that I needed to gain the victory, but at the same time I saw the task as impossible because I was regarding sin as a state of being. How can you overcome a state of being? You are what you are. You're car you, 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 are, you are born a certain nationality, a certain race, and you can't do anything about that at all. Make the best of whatever you are as you are born. And if sin is a state of being, can't do anything about that except be forgiven. A sleepy attitude towards victory. Well, this says that sin is a choice we make. And that leads na naturally to the next point, which is that Christ could take our nature, did not have to have an immaculate conception birth, he could take our nature and not exercise that nature by choice. So that's the difference in this gospel. Christ does not have to have a special exemption of nature or heredity. Christ can take my nature, which means he can be tempted like I'm tempted. He can be tempted to overeat, yes. He can be tempted to lust, yes. He can be tempted to lose his temper. He can be tempted at all, on all the same things I am tempted on, from within his nature as well as outside. This gospel says Christ's temptations were the same as ours. Not his character, but his temptations and his nature. 
difference between nature and character. Nature is the equipment you're born with that you can do nothing about, will stay with you until Jesus comes. It's the pulls and the tendencies and the drives from within. Character is the choice you make, whether you're going to exercise or not exercise those drives, pulls, and impulses. Crucial, important difference between those two that is not recognized in the first gospel. Here's a little dilemma. If the first gospel is true, let's just say it is. If the first gospel is true, Christ takes an unfallen nature. There are only two options now. God is asking you and me to do more than he was asking of Christ. He's asking you and me to overcome sin in a fallen nature. And he exempted Christ from that fallen nature so he wouldn't have to face that battle. That's the first option. God is asking more of you and me than he was asking of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't like that one, and obviously that's not a good option, then the second option is the only one left. God isn't asking it of me either. If he didn't ask it of his son, he isn't asking it of me because he would not treat us, in a, put us in a worse situation than he put his own son. And so if Christ was exempted from sin by an unfallen nature and I have to keep a fallen nature till Jesus comes, he understands that I'm going to be sinning till Jesus comes. He's not going to ask me to overcome sin in a fallen nature. Those are the only two options I'm aware of if we believe that Christ had an unfallen nature. Now to the third point, justification and sanctification. You notice both of them are in there. In this gospel, well, let's, let's, let's make sure. Let's just really make sure we get the difference between the two Gospels because this is the sort of the nutshell of the whole thing. In the first Gospel, justification is 100% effective. Let me read it to you. Here's another statement on this point. Um, wrong one. Justification is 100% Christ's own perfect, meritorious work done for us. Sanctification follows 50-50 as a cooperative work. I work and God works. So that's the first gospel. Justification, 100% effective. Sanctification, 50% effective. Because only half of it is God's work. And my work, I make a botch of. So 50% effective. In this gospel, justification is 100% effective because God does it. And it is a gift. We don't deserve it. He gives it to us. Who does sanctification? That's really the issue, isn't it? Who does sanctification? Is it my work with God pitching in a little bit? Or is it also God's work and my agreeing to let God do his work? Just like justification. That's where the difference lies in the two Gospels. In the area of sanctification. In the Christian Gospel, it can never be 100% effective. In this gospel, if God is doing the justifying, and it's 100%, and if God is doing the sanctifying, can he not also do it 100%? Is that not possible for our God? Or else sin is stronger than God is. And this gospel says that both are God's work, not half our work and half God's work. You see, there's really no difference in the two. I have to agree to let God justify me, right? I have to want it to happen. I have to say, do your work in me. That's my job. What's the difference in sanctification? I say, Lord, I can't keep a Sabbath without your Holy Spirit's presence. I can't return tithe. I can't stop losing my temper. I need your presence within me. I need your power. I need your Holy Spirit. What's the difference between the two? We ask for God's power in both cases, and he provides his gift, first of forgiveness and then of overcoming power. 
In this gospel, God does the sanctifying. And if God does the sanctifying, guess what he can produce? If it's his work. I can't produce it, but God can produce it. I'm going to share with you just a little illustration here. And I don't often give the names of the ones I read from, but I will on this one because this one comes from a gentleman right in your area that you may have uh, listened to once or twice. His name is Graham Maxwell. And he wrote a book called Servants or Friends. Listen carefully to what he said. God works like an infinitely skillful physician. He can save and heal anyone who trusts him. He is not at all satisfied when we come to his office just to be forgiven. He proposes to bring us to the place where we won't have to ask for forgiveness anymore. He offers to heal that place where people do their thinking. Then they won't violate those rules anymore because they don't even want to and all the bad habits are gone. To some, that sounds ominously like perfection. To many servant believers, that is the ultimately burdensome requirement. Servants see this as a command. Friends see it as a promise. See, there's the difference, isn't it? You have to be perfect or I will make you perfect. Friends don't want God to settle for anything less. Would you ask a physician not to heal you completely? Would you say 75% healing will be quite sufficient? Thank you. To servants who think of salvation as dealing with their legal problems, perfection is yet another requirement. To friends who think of salvation as healing the damage sin has done, perfection is an incredibly generous offer. Servants want to be completely forgiven. Friends want to be completely healed. About that matter of perfection, the heavenly physician might call after us as we walk away from his office. Don't worry about it. I've so designed my universe that it's a law. People become like the person they worship and admire. If you really stay my trusting friends, perfection will come. I'm not saying you won't struggle anymore, but the struggle won't be the same. Servants struggle to overcome sin by trying to stamp it out. Friends know they can only get rid of sin by crowding it out with the truth. I like that. I think he really hit on something right there that is just as well said as anything I've ever read. I came across a uh, letter writer uh, who said, what I hear some Adventists saying is that if we will really rely upon Christ, we will almost but not quite be able to overcome sin. That's what we're hearing today, isn't it? Well, we can get rid of most of the sins, the big sins, uh, but not all of them. No, not, not really. Almost, but not quite, be able to overcome sin. All right, there you have what I believe is the Seventh-day Adventist gospel. This is what I believe as the gospel I live by. Now, to summarize it, this, this I came across from the past president of the General Conference, Robert Falkenberg. We can summarize the gospel with one word. Now, what word is he going to choose to summarize this gospel? I can tell you one word that will summarize the first gospel, the Christian gospel. The word is forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's salvation. Keep forgiveness up to date and you're saved. What is the word that he will choose to summarize this gospel? Restoration. Restoration. This emphasis, he said, makes Seventh-day Adventist theology unique. There is the Adventist uniqueness. Restoration. Yes, forgiveness. 
But forgiveness is a halfway house to the real point of the gospel, which is restoration and healing. That's what he came to do when Jesus came down to this earth, to, be, to show us how restoration really works. And then he said, marrying strange theology with Adventist theology can justifiably be described as patchwork theology. Ah, uh, we've been patching. We have been patching together the Christian gospel and Adventist doctrines, and it hasn't worked. We have more questions and more problems and more uncertainties and more strange things happening than ever before. Do we need a judgment? I'd say we do. How can two people who come to church look the same, even act the same, and God goes over the record books and say one of them is ready for heaven and one is not? How can that be true unless some books are open to show the motives, what is really going on in the heart, the relationship of the Holy Spirit that no one else can really see? Books have to be opened or else there will be questions for eternity, won't there? Why didn't this one get in? Why did that one get in? Etc., etc. What about Ellen G. White? Well, I'm afraid that if we're going to believe in Ellen G. White, we'd better just take the problems and the labels that come with it and just believe in Ellen White or else forget her completely. This business of taking her a little bit and rejecting her here uh, and, and doing what we want to, and this is her opinion and that's not valid, that is the same thing the scholars have been doing with the Bible for a hundred years and they've ripped it apart. They've decided what is valid and what is not in the Bible. It's called the historical critical method. Came across this from Dwight Nelson. He's the pastor of the Pioneer Memorial Church, Andrews. If you've been in the Seventh-day Adventist church very long at all, You've been tempted to not believe in this prophet stuff. In today's religious environment, it's embarrassing to be different. It's embarrassing to have a prophet in your movement. You're considered a bit odd, a little strange. And so, we have gone quiet about Ellen White. Without any fanfare or apology, we've simply gone silent. Don't quote her from the pulpit, we admonish each other. Just read the word. Didn't she give some counsel to that effect? But the time has come, this close to the end of Earth's civilization, to re-examine, reflect, re-study, and recommit ourselves to the mission and message of that woman, the most prolific female author in the history of the human race. It's time to stop apologizing for her ministry, both in our own movement and outside of it. And I said, thanks, Dwight. Nice going. And then he stepped right on our toes. We shouldn't call these the red books. They're really the unread books. Ah, that hurts, doesn't it? Does it make much difference if we say, well, Ellen White was wrong. Throw out messages to young people. Even throw out steps to Christ. Or whether we just don't read the books at all. Does it make much difference? In its net effect? If they're unread books, we don't have a prophet guiding us at all. The law, the Ten Commandments. Problem right here. How can we prove that fallen human beings with our bad natures and all the rest, how can we prove that fallen human beings can actually keep the law of God? I don't mean part of the time. I mean all of the time. Where's the proof? May I have your permission? May I have you volunteer for me? little experiment. After we go home tonight, may I follow you home with a video camera? And may I videotape everything you say and do for, say, the next uh, 30 days? Just a month. 
Everything you say and do. When we get to the end of that period, I will have proof on videotape that the law of God can be kept perfectly by someone with a fallen nature. You. How about that? Who wants to be the one to volunteer for my little experiment? I need proof, see? I don't need just saying, well, the law can be kept. Yeah, we can keep the law. I need proof. Where's the proof? And you've heard the question, do you know anybody who's perfect? Over and over we ask that question. Well, where's the proof that the law can be kept? Ah, there it is, right there. But watch it only if he took our fallen nature. There's the only proof that the law can be kept by someone with a fallen nature if he took a fallen nature. If he didn't take our nature, if he was exempted, if he had an immaculate conception, then no one in 6,000 years of history has proved from birth to death that the law can be kept perfectly. And what can then we say about the, the Ten Commandments? Well, our Christian friends have said it. No one can keep the law. No one with a fallen nature can keep the law. That's an impossibility. Jesus took a different nature. That's the only way he could keep it. That's what our Christian friends tell us all the time. And they have a real point. They have a very significant point. But I'm saying there is only one way that we can teach the law with confidence. And that is if Jesus Christ showed us how it can be done. And, of course, the Sabbath is right in the heart of the law, isn't it? Right in the center of it. It's the flag. You know, people can't tell if I'm coveting. But they can tell what day I go to church on. So it's a flag that we hold up. It says very simply, I love God's law. I like it. I want to live that way. That's what the Sabbath really is. It's a symbol of loyalty. And so it does become an issue of test at the end of time. And then we come to the top of the tree, don't we? Got to end up at that top of the tree, don't we? Find out what's going on here. If you live healthfully, does that save you? Good diet, a lot of sleep, a rare commodity on a university campus. Will that cause you to have a better chance of salvation? Let's say you find a person in Loma Linda. Oh, but I guess that's not true. There are no drunks in Loma Linda, are there? There are no people in bad health habits in Loma Linda. Well, let's just say you find one, really search hard, and you find someone, and you bring him right here on campus, and you clean his life up. You get him off alcohol, and you get him off tobacco, and you get his life really cleaned up, and everything else is working right. You know what the statistics right here from this place are? He's going to live seven to nine years longer than his next-door neighbor. That's the statistic. Wow, we've really helped him, haven't we? And then he dies, normal death, and he wakes up in the wrong resurrection. Ah, the one at the end of the millennium. Have we done him any real good? We've given him seven more years of life. Wow, compared to eternity. Is that why you cleaned him up? Is that why you got him off alcohol and tobacco so he could have a little extra living time on this old earth? Or did you have something else in mind? Is there something else about health that is significant? All right. You see, the body and the mind are one unit. The body and the mind are one unit. That is our unique contribution if we have made any in the area of health. What affects one affects the other, and it goes both ways. If the body is all messed up and producing bad blood, what else is going to be messed up? Our brains and our mind. 
our mind is not going to be thinking clearly. Where does God do his saving work? Not in our hands, not in our feet, but in our minds. So what is the purpose of health reform? To clean up the body and the blood so that the brain is working at optimum efficiency and God has a fighting chance to save our souls. That's the point of health reform. It, health reform doesn't save us. It gives a God a fighting chance to do his saving work. So is it significant or insignificant in the whole process of salvation? Uh, one of the editors of the review, Bill Knott, said this, Once upon a time, we understood these as moral and not solely health-related issues. Your body was the temple of the Holy Ghost. But when the reasons advanced for avoiding these and other dangerous behaviors are only health-related, we undermine the biblical and spiritual foundations on which the notion of an Adventist lifestyle was one, once built. We used to believe it was a moral issue. Now it's just a health issue. And you know, it's just a health issue. You can kind of take it or leave it, especially when you're 20 years old and you're a long way from dying, right? So here we have whether it is a moral issue or not. And we've gotten a little bit foggy on that. Well, let's see. What about the standards? Now I'm talking about all the standards, all in one lump. The things that we watch, the things we read, the things we listen to, the entertainment we participate in, and yes, even the clothes we wear. All of our standards. What's the point of them if they don't save? Let's say you listen to your pastor and do what your pastor tells you to do 50% of the time. And then you listen to your favorite TV personality and do what he or she says the other 50% of the time. Who's going to win that little battle? Not your pastor. Well, let's give your pastor 75% of your time and your TV person 25%. Well, that'll work better, won't it? Your pastor will surely win then. Ah, our fallen nature, right? Doesn't need much of a pull at all. Just a little tug the wrong direction. Here's the point. There are two voices speaking to us at all times. At all times. We might think, no, 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 they're not. I, I'm making my own decisions. Ah, that's, that, that, that is the biggest delusion I think we proud human beings have, that we're independent atoms in this universe and we're not being persuaded by any voices other than the ones we want to listen to. There are two voices competing for our attention. They're wanting to persuade us. They're in dead earnest about getting us to believe their way, God and Satan. All right, what are standards for? Pretty simple. To shut down as far as humanly possible, the voice of Satan speaking to the mind. Now, you can't shut him out completely. He has legal rights. You will see and hear his voice. But isn't it worthwhile to shut him down somewhat? To shut him down even as far as is humanly possible so that God has a fighting chance to communicate with your mind and save your soul. We're talking about giving God fighting chances here. We're giving God a chance to communicate with us. If Satan is always communicating to us by his chosen methods, where does God have a voice anymore? It's drowned out. We can't hear him because he will not overpower us and cause us to fall flat on our faces. He'll let us choose what we listen to. So what, is what are standards for? To give God a fighting chance to speak to our souls. Is that relevant to salvation? Someone wrote it this way. 
It is sad to see the illusion further popularized that such lifestyle issues as diet and adornment come from a, quote, religious perspective but are not a matter of salvation. If the written counsel of God addresses a subject, it must be salvation-related or God would have left it alone. I think that's incredibly important. If God addresses something, if he talks about something, it has to have some relation to salvation. He doesn't just say things to be saying them. So these issues of not salvation-oriented are not too solid. Again, reading from Bill Knott, editor of the, one of the editors of the Review. I am finding that people are seeking a re-enunciation of the truths that won their hearts to Jesus and his church. Must we settle for the bromides of the feel-good faith that passes for evangelical Christianity? We hunger for pastors in our pulpits who know as much of Battle Creek as they do of Willow Creek. Ah, did you hear that? We hunger for pastors who know as much of Battle Creek as they do of Willow Creek. Do we understand who we are in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what these points are? You see, this gospel makes all of these doctrines and lifestyle issues meaningful, important, relevant, the other gospel says they have no meaning. Here is where I'll make a kind of final summary of this. If the other gospel, the first gospel, the Christian gospel, does become the mainstream gospel of the Adventist church and is well on its way toward doing that, remember all of the statements I read to you, if it becomes the mainstream gospel of the church, we might as well close our doors and go home because we will have nothing to offer to the Christian world. We will be just parroting their language and their understanding. We can still keep our Sabbath. They won't care. But we will have nothing different to offer in terms of life change and, and, and victory over sin and the power of God and restoration because we will be just like all the other churches. You see, there's very little difference between the Catholic confessional and the Protestant confessional. One, you go to a priest, and the other, you go to Jesus. You just keep your, your forgiveness up to date. That's the Christian gospel. And Adventism has something different to offer. It has restoration and healing to offer by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And if we lose that, we've lost everything. You see, Satan doesn't have to get us to, to break the Sabbath or reject the Sabbath or change our teaching on the state of man and death. He doesn't have to worry about that at all. If he can just compromise our gospel, Adventism is gone. That's the seriousness of this problem. And that's what I want to challenge each one of us tonight to think about very carefully, what gospel we believe in. One last little point. I haven't proved a thing tonight. All I've done is shared with you my understanding of these various issues within Adventism and the Christian church. I've described to you two gospels. If you're going to choose to believe this gospel, which hardly anyone in Christianity believes, if you really are going to believe that this is your gospel, you'd better know why you believe it. You're going to be challenged from within and outside Adventism. So tomorrow, I will share with you my convictions from God's Word, why I believe this gospel. And then I'm going to lay it in your hands. You have to decide what you believe, the first gospel or this gospel. It's your decision. I will not make that decision for you. I can't, and I wouldn't want to. You're the one who will have to know what you believe and why you believe it. If it is important enough for you to take a stand on, or if it's something, take it or leave it. You know, it's not a salvation issue. You have to make that decision. So all I'll do tomorrow is share with you what I have found in the Word of God, and we'll study the Word of God. Now we come back to that first question. You remember it? How can we have a reasonable hope 
that Jesus is going to come while we're alive. I want to share something with you that comes from the front page of the Adventist Review back in 1974. The title of the article is World Leaders in Annual Council Speak to the Church. And I want to read you one sentence. When a generation of Seventh-day Adventists is truly serious about becoming exhibits of what God's grace can do, the moment of final decision by the whole world for or against God will not be long delayed. Now that is a very controversial statement. When a generation of Adventists become exhibits of what God's grace can do, the moment of final decision will be right upon us. I didn't read one word in there about getting the gospel to all those villages in India or the rest of the 8,000 unreached people groups. They said that the second coming of Christ is going to happen when God's people become exhibits of God's grace. Now, the editor of the review back then thought this might take a little explanation, so here is how he explained it in the next issue of the review. He said, Christ could have come decades ago. The blame for the delay rests with man, not God. The delay will continue until the harvest of the earth is ripe, until God has a people who through the faith of Jesus develop the character of Jesus and thus forever refute Satan's charge that God was unjust in asking man to obey his law perfectly. How long will the delay continue? Till God is a people that proves Satan is a liar. What is Satan's lie? The law can't be kept by people with fallen natures. That's Satan's lie. And the point of this whole appeal in 1974 was when there are people who exhibit to the whole universe that God has power over fallen nature, they become exhibits to the whole universe that victory over sin is possible. Then the whole world will be at judgment time and will be at decision time and God will finish his work. That was what they said back in 1974. Were they way off track? A whole bunch of Adventists think they are. Well, God has already decided when he's going to come. It's written up there in the books of heaven. He'll come when he wants to. He'll come when the clock is ready. has nothing to do with us. That is being heard over and over today. Well, you have to make a decision there, too. I think they were right back in 1974. We haven't heard much about that since, by the way. I had to go back to 1974 to find a statement like that. I believe they were onto something, and I believe we've forgotten it. That it's not about what the Pope does in Rome. It's not about what the Christian coalition does in Washington, D.C. Those do not determine the time of the second coming, or else Satan determines the time of the second coming. The time of the second coming is in the hands of God's people. It is when God finds that faithful group the ones who will let his, his power be exhibited in their lives. And then the universe can say, there they are. What need do we have of anything else to be shown? Let's finish up. And Jesus can come. That's what I believe. Um, the editor in this editorial had a caution. He said, if leaders and people are unconcerned about what God is attempting, if they are content to stay in this world, if they are satisfied with business as usual, then as the president of the General Conference pointed out at the recent annual council, 1973 may be known as the 1888 of our generation. Now, what did Elder Pearson mean by that? What was 1888 all about? Well, it's very simple. God came to his people. He said, it's time to go home. Are you ready to go with me? And they said, no, we got problems. We got things to, to handle. Uh, we, we have committees and we have programs. And, and these guys from California, Jones and Wagner, they're upstarts and they haven't gone through the right committees. And we can't accept them just because they say so or even because Alan White says they're right. And so we quibbled and we questioned. And as somebody wrote in, 
Lessons from 1888 are being repeated by church leaders. What are they? The rejection of the message of God by questioning and rejecting the messenger. We are at the borders of the promised land once again. It was just this type of problem that confronted the church in 1888 and caused the most serious historical setback that we have experienced. God came to us, to my great-grandfather's generation, and he said, it's time. I've seen enough sin and pain and suffering. It is time to finish things up. And we were too busy running our church programs to hear God's voice, just like in the time of Jesus, the Jews were too busy with their programs to know who Jesus was. We've got the same problem. And I'm afraid we have it in our time. And Elder Pearson knew that. And he said, we might face another 1888. Running church business, running church activities, and not hearing the voice of God saying, it's time, are you ready to go home? So, how can we have a reasonable hope that Jesus Christ will come in our lifetime? See, there are four things that have to happen in order. You can't change the order. Number one is the latter rain. Number two, the loud cry. Number three, the close of probation. And number four, the second coming of Christ. How does the gospel go to all the world? Not by any method we've devised up to this point. It's going to take the latter rain of the Holy Spirit. That causes the loud cry to the world. Then that causes the close of probation. Then that causes the second coming of Christ. It is a specific order in precise definition. So how can we have a hope? I'd say we need to pray for the latter rain. How do you have the latter rain? You have the early rain. This is the early rain. Conversion, power of God, transformation, character development. That's early rain right now while we're going about our daily business. That's having the Holy Spirit live within our hearts, change us from the inside out. That will bring the latter rain. That will produce all of the other things in sequence. I'm not worried about those 8,000 unreached people groups. When the latter rain comes and the Holy Spirit comes in full power, the loud cry, we'll get to them in God's own way of choosing. We'll be used, but it's God's way, not our, our, our methods. That's how we can have a reasonable hope. You see, the, the problem, the real problem, is not technology or money. The problem is my heart. The problem is right here. While my heart is insistent on its own selfish desires and, and, and what I want to do and what I want to be and what I want to become, how can I have the Holy Spirit fully use me as his servant? That's not a selfless heart ministry. That's a selfish heart ministry. So what we have right here is the need for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Daily, early rain. If we're going to really focus on that and make that the focus of our lives, yeah, we can have a reasonable hope that Jesus will actually come. That's how I believe we have the hope of a soon second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish tonight with just three comments from the Spirit of Prophecy. First from Our High Calling, page 206. Those of the youth who put on the whole armor of God, who will devote time every day to self-examination, who will seek the Lord in earnest prayer, and who will diligently study the scriptures, will have the help of the angels of God, and will form characters that will fit them for the society of the redeemed in the kingdom of glory. I like that one. That's the promise that we can have. Another one, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 500. 
Unless correct ideas of true worship and true reverence are impressed upon the people, there will be a growing tendency to place the sacred and eternal on a level with common things, and those professing the truth will be an offense to God and a disgrace to religion. Are we really serious about true worship and true reverence? Are we a disgrace, an offense to God, and a disgrace to religion? And one more from Messages to Young People 357. I would ask the youth of today who profess to believe present truth, wherein they deny self for the truth's sake. When they really desire an article of dress or some ornament or convenience, do they lay the matter before the Lord in prayer to know if His Spirit would sanction this expenditure of means? In the preparation of their clothing, are they careful not to dishonor their profession of faith? And then this huge statement, it is one thing to join the church and quite another thing to be united to Christ. That summarizes everything I'd like to say tonight. Yes, we can be church members and not united to Christ. That is very easy to do. And you know how easy it is just to let time slip and forget about that time you need with the Lord and surrender to Him completely every day, moment by moment throughout the day. Adventism is unique. Adventism is special. Adventism has something to offer that the world does not know or, or have in its possession. And yes, we can have a reasonable hope that Jesus will come in our lifetime. And you need to help me out because I'm getting older. We want to go home. We want to finish this up. Will you kneel with me as we pray tonight? Father in heaven, you have been very, very patient with us, individually and as a church. You have watched as there has been rejection individually and as a church of your ways, and you have loved us still. You have borne long with us, and we thank you so much for your mercy. Right now, tonight, help us not to presume on your mercy for another generation. Help us to be the generation that will say, this is our time. This is what we see happening in the world around us, that you are, are telling us that the end is near, and we want to be, more than anything else in our lives, the generation that will see Satan defeated and Christ rule for all eternity. I pray for us tonight that we will have in our hearts this deep longing for a unique, special walk with thee that is different from what we have seen in the past in our own lives and in the lives of our friends that we will ask for miracles, that we will ask for things that we have not seen before, and that you will perform them in our lives. And so we ask you tonight on this Sabbath day, make this Sabbath day a day of new beginnings, a day of new challenges, a day of new understanding of who we are and what our purpose is, as we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.